Welcome to JVL, your place to learn from Japan's venture leaders about the promising startup ecosystem in the land of the rising sun. Hey there, I'm Kento, your host for JVL, and today I'm talking to Suzu Kitamura. Suzu is a rising talent in Japan's venture space with her role as a managing partner at Goto Ventures and her work at Gaidi. Today, I want to focus on her story of how she found her way into the venture capital space, being in her early 20s, and what the current state of startup exits is like in Japan. I also wanted to learn about how she got into the startup ecosystem and hope that it can serve as an inspiration for other soon-to-be university graduates in Japan. Thanks for listening in and please enjoy my conversation with Suzu. Cool. Then Suzu, welcome to Japan's Venture Leaders. I'm very happy to have you and how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me today. I'm really I was really excited to join you on this podcast. Yeah, gr glad to hear. Yeah, I guess the first time I heard about you was when a friend here in Tokyo uh, told me about this uh, person who's in her early 20s, who was um, uh, deciding to start as a managing partner at a VC fund. And since this podcast for me is all about like talking to different people in the startup ecosystem in Japan to learn more through their experiences, I thought you're someone I, I need to talk to and to learn more. Uh, so yeah, um, I'm very happy to have this opportunity. And yeah, so I guess the three things that we will talk about um, will be for me to understand first um, who you are and which kind of organizations you're currently working at. Um, the second part is to um, understand the startup ecosystem. And the third topic that you propose would be um, for, for us to learn more about the, the startup exit market in Japan. So to get started with the first part, would you be open to share about your path of how you became kind of a managing partner at a VC firm now? Sure, okay, so basically it kind of ties into how I uh, first got started with working with startups. So I believe, yes, my first internship ever was at a fund called Tiz Ventures. And Tiz Ventures is a global fund that invests in early stage startups in Central Asia and the Caucasus. And when I joined that fund, I honestly had no knowledge of startups, let alone an interest. Um, and even less about venture capital. But, you know, I was entering my third year of university and I really needed to figure out what where I wanted to go in life. So I started working there and um, started in working with the investor relations team and like research tasks and really enjoyed um, working like with startups and in venture capital in general. And I left that internship after a few months, but then A few months later, I was approached by the co-founder of that fund, who his name is Hervé, and he's, yes, one of the managing partners at Tiz Ventures. And, you know, he approached me with this idea of going into the Japanese market with a new fund. And at first I thought he was inviting me to work as an intern under him. Um, that's like the natural progression of working like as an intern and then you would maybe work at, as an, an intern at a different fund. But um Yeah, he actually invited me to be the managing partner and I couldn't even believe that it was happening. Like that doesn't happen. Nobody asks a 21 year old to be a general partner, or managing partner. But, um, you know, actually Hervé's fund too is part of this kind of global constellation of funds uh, called the 101 Fellowship, which is a VC fellowship program uh, created by 
um, a successful capitalist called Paul Bragel. And every year at these funds, I think it's something like 15 funds, they invite fellows of all ages and backgrounds who want to get into VC. Um, and some of these interns have become partners. So I'm not the first and I won't be the last. Um, it's definitely this culture of let's train a new generation of uh, VC managing partners. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, building the fund so far has been a great experience, but there's still a lot of work and learning to be done. Yeah. Oh, sounds uh, sounds super interesting. Um, just to pedal back to what you just mentioned with how you got started uh, started in the startup ecosystem. What was going through your head when you decided to start something in the startup industry? Like, were you thinking about like other ways you can um, develop your career? Like, did you have other options, or why did you specifically choose to work um, at Tus Ventures? Okay, that's an interesting question. So at the time, I think there's this thing where if you are considered a good student or you're kind of like considered smart, um, you kind of get pushed into certain towards certain careers, like for example, investment banking or maybe finance or consulting at one of those big firms. So that's definitely somewhere I felt like people around me were pushing me towards so I was kind of looking for internships in finance but I kept getting rejected to everything because I had zero experience um, and those kind of internships I think they look at do you have any prior internship experience but I didn't so when I saw the two's ventures a posting it was actually on LinkedIn and they were looking for people in Japan to work on the investor relations team to uh, work on in investor relations with Japanese investors so I kind of figured, okay, well, it's venture capital and it kind of sounds like finance, so let's just try it. And then maybe I'll use this internship to leverage, um, you know, an, another internship at a financial firm. But turns out that I actually like startups and venture capital a lot more. <laughs> okay, yeah. So it seems like you kind of stumbled into this world of startups. Is that something like switching back to like traditional finance career like is that something that you still kind of consider in the back of your mind or like have you um, completely erased that thought and now you just want to stay in the startup world um i think when you, once you enter the startup world there's no going back <laughs> like it's just too interesting so yeah definitely not I, yeah i think i'm where i need to be and want to be nice um, and also, I think one interesting thing about you is that you just recently started off your career in Tokyo. What, what is it you think is like makes Tokyo an interesting place to be? Um, I'm not sure like how big of a decision factor was also considering um, your, your VC fund. But um, do you think it's like super necessary to be in Tokyo or what was your um, decision process of landing in Tokyo? Um, the decision process of landing in Tokyo was... The biggest reason is the company I'm working for now, Gaidi, um, where I'm advising and providing consulting to startups regarding their fundraising. It happened to be located in Tokyo, but um, definitely a big factor of why I made the move was a lot of the ecosystem in Japan is in Tokyo, unfortunately. Um, previously, I was living in Kyoto and I was interning at um, Plug and Play Japan, their Kyoto office. And in Kansai, I would say in general, there are a lot of deep tech startups. So things like medicine and health tech and new materials and things like this, just because of the universities that are there. Um, and, you know, people are making a lot of effort to build the Kansai ecosystem up 
Kobe, Osaka, Kyoto. But still, I think Tokyo is the place to be. It's where a lot of the VCs are, a lot of the startups. So definitely, I've seen a change already in how much I can be networking, like how many people I can meet in Tokyo. Okay, makes sense. But you think that it's like super necessary, like if you want to become a successful VC, to have this presence in Tokyo? That's a hard question. I would say it's not necessary, but it's nice. I think if you launch a VC in any other part of Japan, you'll just be taking a lot of bullet train trips <laughs> to Tokyo. But also Zoom and、um, these like, online meetings are making it possible so that those face to face meetings aren't so necessary. But I think like, a big part of Japanese business culture is definitely that kind of relationship building, which is easier to do in person.、Mm -hmm. Okay. And I was also wondering about one thing, which was so you interned before at a VC firm and now you are managing director. So. Becoming a managing director of a VC firm, was there anything that was like the, the steepest learning curve for you? Because you already knew the VC industry like a little bit, but what's changed now that you are、um, at Goto Ventures? I think the. Okay, there are several big changes that we can talk about, but the biggest change is obviously becoming the leader.、Um, before I was an intern, so. You know, you get a task and you execute it, and then you get your other task. But being a managing director, and I'm not going to say I'm a full fledged managing director, I'm still learning a lot about this. And I have an amazing mentor, my co founder.、Um, but this idea of VC is kind of an industry where you build the car as you drive it. So, You know, I'm very much usually a person that likes to plan everything and have all the pieces lined up and then、uh, build whatever it is I'm building.、Um, but this is an industry, the startup ecosystem in general, where things are moving at such a fast pace and you need to adapt and adapt and adapt. And there's no way you can have all the pieces lined up before you start. So that was definitely the biggest learning curve was learning how to drive the car as you build it, but also.、Um, Being able to organize your team as well because you're in a managing position and there are people under you waiting for direction and waiting for you to set the goal. And that has been <laughs> really a challenge.、Um, you know, in university, I used to take a lot of leadership positions. I'm in the student council and different organizations, but this is a completely new level because this is business <laughs> and people are, people are trusting you to execute.、Um, Yeah, so that's been the biggest. What would you say was your biggest learning in terms of how to manage people? I would say. Okay, that's a difficult question. The biggest challenge in terms of managing people is. I think to just trust people and be honest with your own limits, but also the limits of others. So. Definitely delegating tasks is a challenge for me.、Um, but you have to trust that other people are capable, like probably even more capable of your, than yourself, to complete these tasks. And if they're not, if they're not pulling their weight, then you know, it may be time to say goodbye. And that is a challenge. You know, definitely managing those human resources is a big challenge. Okay, yeah.、Um... 
So now I would like to transition to like, um, I mean, building on what you just said with the, you know, learnings from the venture capital industry, I would like to kind of move on to your learnings also specifically about the startup ecosystem. Um, so I guess the, the question that I always ask my guests is, what is your current impression of the Japanese startup ecosystem? Okay, I think Japan's startup ecosystem is overlooked and maybe some of your other guests have said the same thing but I think it's really being overlooked by the rest of the world um, because to be honest on paper it doesn't have the amazing statistics that for example a growing ecosystem like India has in terms of like the number of startups the amount of funding the unicorns but I think there's a lot to offer if you know where to look and one thing that surprised me during my time um, at Plug and Play Japan is that founders here are really, really passionate about their companies and not the business side of it, but rather the impact they're trying to have with those companies. So it might have been, you know, the nature of the verticals I was involved in at Plug and Play, which was deep tech, health, medicine, new materials. But it was like every founder I spoke to had this deep conviction about contributing to society. Um, many of them were, you know, university professors with no prior business experience, but they felt so passionately about giving back that research to society, um, about leveraging the work that they've been doing to create change, that they decided to actually step out of their expertise and comfort zone to found a company. So I think there's a lot, a lot of passion and potential um, that needs to be unleashed into the world and across, you know, the, Japan's borders. Mm. So would you say that the kind of people you spend your time with in terms of the founders were like less motivated by financial motives? I would say so, yes. And even if they were, okay, I can't say definitively, but it felt like they were more motivated by their passion and they would kind of, I could see a frustration because, you know, the nature of business is you need to think about the numbers and the money. And I could see the frustration that, you know, to them, that was less important than the actual impact of their technology or what they were offering. Yeah, I see. And so I, I'm assuming like at Plug and Play, you were kind of assisting all these kinds of um, startups in their portfolio, especially in the deep, deep tech space. Was there like a common challenge that these companies faced? Like I'm sure each company solved a different problem and um, had different team constellations. But across the companies that you've been dealing with um, in the deep uh, deep tech space, was there like a common challenge that you saw most of these companies having? I think the common challenge, and this is something we're trying to tackle with the Goto Ventures investment thesis, but I think a lot of people are realizing that the market is shrinking in Japan and that there's a need to go abroad. Like there, there is a desperate need to go abroad. There's a ticking clock here. There's a shrinking population and aging population. And I, I'm seeing more and more founders understand that they need to be seeking opportunities outside of Japan. But obviously there's this huge language and cultural barrier, which can be super intimidating. I'm seeing more and more um, people in the startup ecosystem getting comfortable with English, making an effort to learn. Um, so I'm hopeful. But yeah, I think that's the biggest challenge. Were there like specific anecdotes where you talked to a specific founder and that person was like, hey, 
we would like to show some like good growth metrics, but we can't because we're currently just too limited on the Japanese market. Like were these kind of, you know, the, the conversations you had with the founders or like what made you get this feeling of, okay, um, this the shrinking demographic problem is like the reason why people are starting to look abroad more. Okay, that's interesting. I would say founders don't come out and talk about their growth metrics. I think it's just this feeling, this general feeling, not even just limited to the startup ecosystem, but to Japan in general of this, not this impending doom, but this sense of, okay, there, we there's an issue and we need to go around this. And also kind of this feeling of Japan falling behind on the world stage, I think. I think people are just sensing this decline and starting to, not panic, but starting to recognize that this is an issue that's going to be affecting their startup and their life outside of their startup as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think these two problems, like one, the, the declining population, but also like the economic stagnation or um, decline of Japan, those are two problems that are kind of very big and very long-term. Like they, they drag out over many decades. And so I guess as humans, it's like very kind of difficult to really um, feel the immediate effect of it. Like, sure, it's kind of a, a feeling that you have in your head and you're like, oh, well, um, we have this problem and we need to do something about it. But as with any other like huge problem, uh, which is where it's difficult to wrap your head around it, I think it's like hard to really act upon it uh, because you're just like, okay, I mean, this is a problem that I might really immediately face in more than a decade. So I'm obviously not going to do anything about it now because I have other things to uh, enjoy or do now. Um, but I guess it's, uh, it's interesting that you're also hearing these kinds of stories from founders. Um, are there any like specific markets these founders are trying to enter or is it like super specific to each company? I think it's definitely specific to each company, but a trend I'm noticing is a lot of people are realizing that there's more to the world than the US and Europe. Um, obviously, there are a lot of companies and tech and startups in these countries. So when you look at that as your mark next addressable market, I think it's very intimidating because you likely already have competitors. But more and more like startups are looking towards places like Southeast Asia, Africa, Middle East, like all Central Asia, even all of these places where, you know, they may have um, a technical advantage or they have a, a resource advantage. I definitely see uh, people looking towards those and especially um, founders who are, as I said before, focused on impact. Um, they're definitely looking towards these places where they can actually have probably more of an impact than if they had just stayed in Japan. Yeah. Makes sense. I guess it seems like if you try to target Europe or in the US, you tend to have more like the the first world problems that you can tackle with your company. And then if you go to like um, more like the developing countries or like markets which are less developed, then makes sense that these impact driven startups, um, you know, are more focused on that. Um, can you maybe also take, talk more about your, um, you, you mentioned the investment thesis at Goto Ventures that you try to tackle like these, the demographic decline. Um, what are like the, the the typical companies you reach out to or are in, are in touch with nowadays? So our investment thesis at Goto Ventures has evolved quite a lot. 
at first we were looking at population decline because we thought that the startups that are addressing population decline in Japan, they're going to be have the first mover advantage because Japan is pretty much on the forefront of this population decline issue that actually, you know, other developed countries like Germany are, are facing. But we kind of realized that it's a little early to be investing in this. There's not a lot of tech there yet. So we decided to actually pivot a little bit and actually Instead of focusing on population decline itself, we decided to tackle something kind of related, which is the shrinking market. So actually now what we're doing is um, investing or talking and investing into startups in Japan that have a global mindset from the get-go. So people who are planning and considering international expansion at a very early age and actively working toward that goal. So instead of localizing their product to Japan from the start, they have the goal of, okay, even if they get started in Japan, even if they you know build traction in Japan, their ultimate goal is to go outside. And we, you know, our our team is really international like i'm the only one in japan the rest of the team is abroad and they have their own experience and expertise building businesses there so it's kind of combining all of our strengths to address this issue of okay the market is shrinking in japan people need to be having the ambition of going abroad more and more so what can we do to invest in companies with that vision but also you know our value add is helping them also scale abroad. Mm -hmm. I think this topic of global mindset is something that I've run in, uh, ran into a couple of times during my time here in Tokyo. Seems like a lot of people agree with this thesis. And recently I was also talking to someone and we were like, okay, um, how do you find these kinds of companies that started in Japan, but also think about global expansion very early on? Can you tell us something about how you try to find these companies in the Japanese market? Because I feel like I, have, I, I at least have not, not seen like a database to find like early stage companies who are trying to expand early. So where do you look to find these companies? Definitely there is no database. I wish there was. I wish people could, you know, put their hand up and say, yes, we're going global. But the way, you know, we've gone through a lot of different sourcing methods, thought about a lot of ways to access startups, but Honestly, the best way is to just to talk to people. Um, people, I think in Japan, people tend to be very humble and they don't outright say their, uh, their huge goals and ambitions in case maybe they fail. I'm not sure why. Um, but when you talk to people and you talk to them for long enough, they kind of reveal this, reveal their true goals to you, I would say. And a lot of times they do want to go abroad. They, they know that, you know, Japan is not the end-all, be-all, but maybe they don't have the resources or they think it's too ambitious or, you know, how am I going to learn a new language? All of these things. Um, but hopefully we can be the ones to, you know, actually encourage that ambition and say, no, you can do it. It's possible for Japanese startups to go abroad. Okay. So you just seek out normal startups who might not have already it down in their vision that they want to grow global but you just you know approach kind of these normal startups and try through conversation to uncover if they actually try to go you know expand internationally 
Definitely. Like one thing we do is we approach startups that already have a product that may have an application abroad. So for example, maybe it's a medical, just an example, maybe it's a medical wearable that actually could save a lot of lives in Africa, for example. So we would ask them, hey, like, have you ever thought of going abroad with this? There's a market that, you know, it could potentially be addressed by your product. So yeah, like, do you have any ambitions for going abroad? And yeah, most times the founder says, yeah, we really want to go abroad, but we don't know where. We don't know where. We don't know, like, yeah, where this product would actually be helpful. And a lot of times it's because they looked at America and uh, Europe and there is maybe already a competitor. So one thing that we do try to do is a little bit of consulting, but kind of, you know, use our team. Our team's located on four different continents. So use our team's knowledge of different markets and kind of suggest, hey, why don't you look under this rock over here? (laughs) So that's definitely something we do is approach founders who maybe they're not aware of their global potential yet, but we want to definitely ignite that. So when, when founders say they don't know where to expand their startup to, I'm assuming it's not like, um, because they're lazy. Um, is, do you, what do you think is, is the reason? Like, why are they too scared? Or do they just not have the resources to allocate people to researching about global expansion? Is it just a lack of English? Or what, what do you think is like the, the underlying reason why the, these um, companies do not really act, act upon international expansion? I think it's a combination of all of those factors. I think the language is definitely the biggest the biggest challenge. I'm the only one on my team that speaks Japanese and reads and writes Japanese. So, you know, even even approaching startups is a challenge for us because um, nine times out of ten, ten they don't speak English. Um, but I think it's just, I think the world and Japan itself is convinced that Japan is a Galapagos island, that it's just so different from any other countries, that anything you build here is, is, can only be applicable here, but that's proven, that's been proven, like, so many times to be wrong. Uh, There are huge Japanese corporations, like, look at all the, all these car companies that are abroad, that have a name abroad, um, But maybe maybe it's hard for the little guys, the startups, the smaller companies to imagine, um, you know, making a stamp on the world. But and there's also not very many examples of startups that have actually been successful abroad. So but there are more and more. Yeah, like Mirukari. So I think it's going to be I think. Yeah, I think there's going to be a massive increase from now, now that there's examples to look to. And you just mentioned like most of your companies you talk to are Japanese speaking. Is um does that mean you also sometimes talk to like um teams where you have maybe have Japanese founders or founders who are able to speak English fluently? Yes. Sometimes the founders are able to speak English fluently, especially I think, you know, a lot of university professors in Japan, probably because just research in academia in general require kind of requires you Not so much requires you, but it's very, very helpful to be able to speak and read English, obviously, because the big journals and papers around the world are in English. So a lot of times I find that people who are from that kind of academic background speak English. Others, maybe they used to work in an international company 
Um, but generally, you know, most of the startups we speak with are Japanese speakers who don't speak English yet. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. Any like noticeable differences in terms of mindset if you just compare the, the few English speaking startups in Japan versus the Japanese speaking startups in Japan? I think the English speakers are more likely to have already, you know, considered international expansion. I think, you know, just speaking another language opens up a new world to you. And it, I think you just, it, you're more confident that you can actually do it. So that would be basically the main difference. Mm -hmm. Okay, sounds cool. Um, so now we just spent some time talking about, especially early stage startups. Um, and I guess one thing that is also something that founders should think about um, is what happens towards the end of your life cycle. Um, so I would like to like transition to the third topic where you proposed um, to share more about the um, the market for exiting for startups. So just to um, intro this topic, could you tell us about common ways how Japanese startups uh, exit? Okay, so first of all, I want to say that when I'm talking about exits, I'm usually I'm just talking about um, like merger and acquisition and IPOs generally. Um, interestingly, I saw these um, statistics that say Japanese startups tend to fail at far less at a lower rate than their counterparts in other countries. Um, when this study and maybe you can put it in your show notes, um, basically showed that after five years, the ratio or the number of startups that were al alive, still going active, I should say, um, after five years was much higher than other countries. Now, I don't remember the exactly the specific numbers, but that's why I'm, when I talk about exit, I'm referring to like successful exits and not necessarily failures. So in Japan, um, and this is from the World Bank report, the Tokyo Startup Ecosystem report. I think everybody's seen this report around, um, but they found, they cited a study by Meti, but um, 65% of the exits are IPOs and they said the rest are M&As. And in the same report, they said this is crazy because in the US, for example, only 7% of exits are IPOs. Um, so this particular report suggested that the reason that these startups are exiting through IPO at such a high rate is because of how they're accessing, that's how they access growth funding. So the report said that only 7% of startup funding in Japan is later stage. So because there's so little growth stage funding, basically the only option is to go IPO um, for growth funding. So another thing that this report said that we should keep in mind is that it's much easier to IPO in Japan than in the United States. So before they, I believe they restructured the, the stock exchange earlier this year, but before that there was the mother's market, which was the kind of the market for high tech and emerging stocks. And they had pretty loose regulations about IPOs. So I'm, I don't want to say it's easy to IPO, but it's relatively easy to IPO than other countries. And so startups could go public very early. Um, but that's just one, like this growth funding theory is just one theory about why these Japanese startups are exiting through the IPOs at such high rates. But, you know, recently I've been researching startup exits as part of my uh, university thesis, actually. And 
I found this very interesting opinion paper from a researcher at the Nippon Institute for Research Advancement, and they actually discussed you know, a bit of the history behind the mother's market and suggested that this market was actually created after the bubble for VCs to have a stable, like, and safe and steady exit route. Because after the, the bubble burst, um, like these people who were invested in startups, they didn't have any route to successfully exit their, com- their company, so they couldn't make a return. So this market became like that reliable, safe exit route. So that's kind of those are kind of the two theories I've seen for why Japanese startups go um turn to the IPO as their exit strategy. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. <laughs> does that does that have any impact on the investment horizon of um venture capitalists for example, like usually in the US or elsewhere, you would think to return your capital after 10 years? Is that similar in Japan or based on the situation you just described? Um, do capital uh, venture capitalists like think less long term, like maybe to return the money after five years or eight years, or does that not have an impact? I think that the IPO, I think generally, okay, I think VCs in Japan still have that ten year kind of span in mind, except for research, kind of research heavy startups because you know, the amount of money and resources it takes to develop something in deep tech or hard tech is longer. So I've seen some, for example, like university-backed VCs have a 15-year investment horizon. Um, but, you know, I think I think generally Japanese startups, even though they IPO early, um, it's still the same number of years. Like, they're just very, it's it's kind of a slow growth so you might still have that 10-year investment span, but the end of it is their IP, doing an IPO when they're like Series B or Series A even, yeah. I wonder why that kind of slow growth happens. Is it because the, the founders are less ambitious or is it because, I mean, usually this high growth is motivated from the kind of um, capital provider side, right? Like the, the venture capitalist wants to see kind of quick returns um, and also wants to see the company succeed in the face of competition from other players. Um, so like usually as a founder, you're very uh, incentivized to grow quickly to make your uh, investors happy also. Um, so do you think it's because the venture capitalists in Japan are maybe like less demanding in terms of what uh, growth numbers they want to see or um, what do you think are the reasons why uh, founders are like, you know, less focused on super high growth? Maybe there's um, slower growth just because your competition is basically other startups doing the same thing in Japan. Like maybe if you were competing on a more global scale, you would see some faster growth. I'm not sure. But one thing we have noticed when we're sourcing startups is a lot of startups in Japan seem to be older than startups abroad and what I mean by that is that a company could be five years old and still be in the seed like raising their seed round um and in the in other places they tend to be younger but sometimes that you know you can't really trust or you can't really look at when the company was founded to judge how old the startup is because one thing we've seen is that a company that was not a startup that doesn't do you know tech they actually transition 
to tech, like maybe they build on their existing business with some tech aspect and then they kind of become or are reborn as a startup. So that also happens, but we've really seen that it takes, it seems to take a long time for startups to, a longer time, or they tend to be older in Japan than in, in other countries, yeah. Hmm. I wonder, is that a problem? That they're older, maybe they're more experienced, and that leads to less failure because they try to, you know, um, value stability more than too high growth? Definitely. I think it's good for the startup, probably. Um, but I would caution that, you know, even in our team, we have a lot of experience. Mem uh, we have members that are really experienced in VC outside of Japan. And we were looking at these startups and their first instinct was, why is the startup so old? Um, why is it still a startup? And so I think the only danger is that when people are looking from the outside in, they don't understand those that number. Um, they'll judge the startup based on that number without because they don't understand like the ground reality. So that would be the only the only issue is maybe when you're trying to fundraise abroad, that would be a question that would pop up for the startup. Mm, okay, makes sense. One thing that I've heard another person in the VC space talk about is that a lot of companies seem like our startups, but there's this concept of like, is the startup also venture backable? Um, venture backable, um, there are probably like a lot of different criteria based on the VC, but one of the metrics is probably like, does the company tackle a market that is big enough? Does it make sense for the VC to invest to ensure a high enough return? Do you run into the problem that you talk to many of these startups and based on their limited ambition or their limited research, you deem them as not venture backable or like do you feel like there are too many companies that you look at that are like not venture backable like kind of makes sense as a vc to invest in so one thing that we see in companies in japan that we would probably refrain from investing in is not having an innovative tech aspect to it or it's a japanese copy of a business that already exists abroad so maybe it's a business model that already exists, even in those markets that I mentioned earlier, like Southeast Asia or, or Africa, but they've just localized it to Japan. So that's not something for us because we're focused on the global expansion. So bringing a business model from abroad is not something that we would look at. Um, but also going back to what I said earlier, definitely the companies that don't have a clear tech aspect like something about the technology that they're that they're offering needs to be different from all the other ones already available on the market so for example maybe an e-commerce business is not exactly something that we're looking to invest in but i think that kind of criteria for investment is um particular to each vc because i've seen vcs in japan invest in companies that would not be considered startups in other countries so it's really up to the vc okay nice um and then as a final question like out of the companies you you're like talking to on a daily basis what is like maybe one company that you're like super excited about like even if you're not investing in them like where you said like wow this is something that is super innovative and i like to learn more about this Okay, I would say one company that... Wait, let me think about this question because <laughs> this, this is going to be like marketing for that startup. So let me, <laughs> let me pick a good one. 
<laughs> yeah, don't pick a bad one. Okay. <laughs> I don't want to pick a bad one and then, like, tomorrow they have a scandal and then it's all... <laughs> 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 uh, okay, are you asking, like, specifically a company we've spoken to, like, as as goto ventures or just in general um any any company like um you don't need to mention your relationship to this con- uh, company just any company based in japan where you thought okay um this is something cool and i'd like to learn more about this company so one company i'm really interested in is called yuria it's basically a company that provides a new form of urine testing that you can check so many of your vital statistics from so it could actually you know one day maybe it could actually replace the blood test so it's less invasive and definitely this is a really interesting company that could have so many applications when it comes to like medicine in developing countries like on the front lines of tackling um you know different diseases or epidemics or anything like that definitely that is a huge innovation that i'm excited about i think yeah it could really make a difference in a lot of places around the world that sounds pretty cool i'm i'm assuming that's like a deep tech company startup by some academic or yes i believe their team is mostly university researchers or just researchers yeah okay nice makes sense cool um so that wraps up the official part i would say and then i just have like a couple of um like rapid fire questions that um, i'm asking like other um guests as well uh, so the first question is what is your favorite place in japan Ooh, i have to say kyoto i know that's such a basic answer but i feel like i grew up in kyoto so i have to say kyoto. any any specific place in kyoto that you especially like a specific place in Kyoto. That's a hard question. Honestly, I love Fushimi. The just the general area of Fushimi. It's where you know, it's where my family lives, it's where I was living, but it's kind of like an old Kyoto. It's an area where yeah, oh, maybe you don't need like extra information, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, that sounds cool. I'll I'll try to check it out one day. Okay. And um, next question is, what does the Japanese startup ecosystem need to blossom? More global talent. Okay. Yes. And last question is, what makes you happy? <laughs> okay. It's not rapid fire because I'm taking too long to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's slow fire questions. Uh, what makes me happy? <laughs> that doesn't need to be anything no, super such a deep thought question. out. <laughs> I think, okay, what makes me happy is a nice cup of coffee, a nice dessert, and a good novel. <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, nice. Uh, nice answer. That's three things, but oh. I'll count it as one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, an um, afternoon okay. with those three things. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, cool, Suzu. Then uh, thanks a lot for your time. And yeah, looking forward to seeing you sometime in, in Tokyo. Okay, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to this episode with Suzu. I respect her boldness to start as a leader at a VC firm at such a young age and hope that by listening to her story, many others can feel empowered to explore their curiosity in such a bold way. My learning from this conversation was around the unique nature of how startups exit in Japan, and I like the idea that her firm Goto Ventures specifically supports globally expanding startups, 
it does see a lot of potential, but also a huge inability of Japanese firms to think beyond national markets. To learn more about Suzu's firm, make sure to go to gotoventures.vc. If you like this episode, please follow and rate it on whichever podcast platform you're listening from. And for feedback, please reach out to jvl.podcast at gmail.com. Thanks again and see you next time.